Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. We are in Genesis uh, chapter 35 today, if you want to begin turning there. Um, as you remember last week, in, uh, chapter 34 was one of those yucky chapters I, I had mentioned, stuff that you generally won't hear covered from the pulpit on a Sunday morning, uh, just full of wickedness. In fact, it's interesting. Uh, well, let me jump in here at chapter 35, verse 1, and then I'll back into chapter 34 for a second. At chapter 35, verse 1, we read, Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Then God said. It's rather significant that in Shechem, nothing good happened. Remember, God had told Jacob back in chapter 28 I'm going to send you to your uncle, you're going to get a bride, you're going to have a family, you're going to come back. And now we're 30 years later, and finally God says to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel, and he's going to return. But in the meantime, we saw all of these delays and all of these compromises in Shechem. Uh, we call that the Shechem Incident or the Dinah Incident by way of sanitizing it because it was just foul, all the wicked things that went on in Shechem. Um, but you know, the things that happened in Shechem last chapter could not have happened if Jacob never went there. He wasn't supposed to go there, okay? He was coloring outside the lines. It's no different than uh, you can't get in an accident or get pulled over for a DUI while returning home from the bar if... You don't go to the bar, okay? There's places you just shouldn't be. And, and Jacob had moved into Shechem. He had bought a field there, right? Basically, he bought into the community. And as a result, his daughter was defiled and humiliated. And his sons became tools of Satan to steal, kill, and destroy. And his whole family is just unraveling in that last chapter. And as I mentioned, or maybe I haven't, but in Genesis chapter 34, the Shechem incident, not one mention of God. I don't know if you noticed that, but God is not in it, okay? Now we come to chapter 35, and interesting, it begins with, then God. And we're actually going to see God mentioned by name in chapter 35 11 times, and if you count the names of God that refer to God, like Bethel, the house of God, or Israel, ruled by God, there's another 11 times or 22 times in chapter 25 that God is referenced. And so you can relax and breathe easy. We've got a bit better chapter this week than last week uh, to kind of cover. So here we go. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel. Uh, and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. Let, there, let us arise and go up to Bethel, 
and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. So we have a total regrouping here in these first four verses. God says to Jacob, go home. This is where we started. I'm calling you back home. Come to ground zero. You've been out chasing the things of the world, and it's really turned out bad for you. In 1 John, the Apostle John writes in chapter 2 at verse 15, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And we see here, God says to go back to Bethel and dwell, abide, put down roots, come home to where I am. In Revelation, in chapter 2, Jesus writing to the church of Ephesus would say in verse 2 of chapter 2 of Revelation, I know your works your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. A whole list of things that God says, I know. I know you're doing all this. You're working hard. You're doing all of these things. And Jacob could say, man, these last 30 years, I've worked hard. I've done things well and everything. But God says in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, speaking of the church, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Get back to ground zero. Come home to God. At Pure Word, one of the topics on the table was um, restitution. What does that look like when God restores you, when He calls you home? Much like the story of the prodigal that we read that Jesus tells the parable of the, of the father who had two sons and one demanded the inheritance so he could go spend it terribly. He ended up, you know, in a pit, and, the, and he decided to come back to his father. What did that restoration look like when he came back to his father? His father welcomed him into the home, threw his robe on him, gave him his ring, threw a feast. But did the rules at dad's house change? No, they are the same rules that he had left so many years ago. But when you're prepared to come back and live according to the Father, to dwell in God's grace, to be there in the will of God, God will welcome you back. And this is what God is doing with Jacob. In John, in chapter 15, a very familiar passage to many of you, talking about coming and putting your roots down, we read in chapter 15 of John, verse 5, Jesus speaking, "'I am the vine, you are the branches.'" He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me 
and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. For by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. And so we see here this promise that God made to Jacob that I will be with you, I will send you off to Haran, to your uncle Laban, you'll get your bride, you'll come back with your family. And while that promise was to Jacob specifically, the principle of the promise flows to all people who would walk in the Spirit, not according to the flesh. If you will walk according to God, then God will be your God. He will dwell with you, and you will bear much fruit. So, here we see now in chapter 35, 1 through through 4, Jacob is taking charge of his family. He said to his household, verse 2, and all who with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. That, that business of these foreign gods and, and, and purify yourself and change your garments. Um, in Jude, in chapter, or not chapter, Jude has one chapter, but in verse 23, we read in Jude, uh, or verse 22, and on hum, some have compassion making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of fire, even hating the garment defiled by the flesh. When you want to come back home to God, you're going to have to put off all of your off-putting things, your stinky stuff, those garments defiled by the world, whatever it is that you're bringing with you. In this case, he told his family, get rid of those foreign gods, okay? We already saw Rachel had taken her uncle Laban's foreign gods, the little terebinth that they had, these little um, carved image like good luck charms or whatever, um, and now the children are following suit. The children knew what Mama Rachel was up to, right? And you can't hide from your children what you're doing, okay? She was trying to hide this thing, but your kids know. Your kids know and see. If you're going to take charge of your family, you want to come back to God, you want to be a family that honors the Lord, just know that your kids see your gods. Don't be fooled. You're not hiding them. Is it liquor, drugs, pornography, gambling? Maybe, maybe let's Netflix and some of that. Maybe it's your stash of candy or junk food that you keep from your kids. I grew up and my mom had a stash. She always liked peanut M&Ms and black licorice. Now, I know a lot of people don't like black licorice, but as a little boy, I knew where my mom's candy stash was. And if I wanted candy, it meant black licorice. So I acquired a taste for black licorice to this day, okay? Your kids know what you think you are hiding. They know better than anybody, right? And, and we have to be careful. But here's the other side of that coin. Your kids see your God. Your kids see your devotion in the morning when they get up and you're sitting there at the coffee table when they wander into the room and you've got the Word of God open. Or your kids see you when you pray throughout the day. Let's stop and pray for this one. And you're, you're a person of prayer. Your kids see your church attendance or how much you are uh, involved in uh, outreach and service in the community. Your kids see your tithes and offerings. That's why we 
collect the tithes and offerings while the kiddies are in the room because they want to, we want the families to participate in this and the kids to see this is one of our acts of worship to the Lord. Um, your kids, they're listening to the same radio station that's on in the car when you're driving around. They're hearing the same, I don't know, Christian radio, talk radio. They're getting an earful of that. Uh, they know what you have in your library at your house what friends you hang out with, what kind of wholesome activities you do. And as you set that example, and here Jake is setting that example, your kids can be turned around, even though they might have been out in that world. The cure for worldliness is separation from the world, cutting it off. Now, I know when you share Jesus with some of your friends, they're like, you just want me to give up my stuff. I'm like, it's really not that. It's really not that, okay? What it is is I've got Jesus. I've got so much Jesus, I've got enough to share. And it's the best thing. Uh, it has changed my life. It's revolutionized me. So you're not telling me I have to give this stuff? And I said, well, I'm not telling you you have to give that stuff, but you're not going to want that stuff. That, that stuff is like a dog returning to his vomit. When you get to know how good God is, you're not going to want that stuff. And that's kind of that picture. In Colossians chapter 3, we read uh, verse 4. Now, this is speaking to the church. It says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. And he starts listing fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you, you, you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now, okay, that was the old man, you're now the new man, but now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Another similar passage in Ephesians in chapter 4, beginning at verse 22, we read that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And so God is stepping up. I mean, God, Jacob is stepping up and obeying God and telling his family, put away all those foreign gods, all of those idols, that idolatry, that covetousness, and all the wicked things, Purify yourselves, change your garments, okay? Put on Christ, we would say. And let us arise and go up to Bethel. Remember, that means house of God. It was named by Jacob back in chapter 28 when he was fleeing his brother Esau after he had deceived his father Isaac, and he had that dream that night of a ladder and angels ascending and descending to heaven with the Lord at the top of the ladder. He woke up in the morning and he said, surely God is in this place, and he named it Bethel, the house of God. Arise and go up to Bethel, and I, will make, and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone." So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by 
Shechem. It's also known in the Bible as the oak tree of Moriah, okay? And this is at that place, remember, when Abraham came into the promised land, first place that Abraham stopped, he built an altar and he sacrificed. Now he's coming down to Bethel, the second place Abraham stopped, and he's going to go down and build this altar there, and then he's taking all these things and leaving them behind in Shechem, right? That, that advertising thing, it's, it's very catchy, but it's quite wicked. Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, yeah, actually, you know, um, whatever happens in Shechem, leave it there. Don't bring any of it with you. And, and, and Christian, you know, this is true for us as well. Um, there's a lot of things that you're going to have to leave behind in your walk with the Lord that are not of the Lord, things that He has not called you to. And uh, this is what He's asking them all to do. It's interesting, He says, your foreign gods are those idols, and also earrings. Now, what's wrong with the earrings, okay? We don't know specifically. But throughout the Scriptures, quite often, earrings are an indication of who you serve. We see in the New Testament, somebody who is indentured as a servant in a household, when they choose, when their, their term of indenturement is up, and in the Old Testament would be at the end of seven years, then they could be free. But they might love their master, love the household, and want to continue serving. And they say, they come to the master and say, I love you. Is there any way that I could just continue serving you out of just love for you? And the master says, sure, we can do that. And, and you would now become attached to our family. It's sort of a way of being adopted into the family. And you'd be a permanent member of the family. And the way that they would signify this, that you are now a slave to this new household, is they would take you to the door of the house, and they would take you up against the doorpost and put your ear next to the door and take an awl and drive it through your ear and into the doorpost. And now you are attached to the house, okay? And then they would pull the all out and they would put a ring in, okay? And then you would become what is known in the New Testament as a bond servant. You're bound in love to this house of this master who you love. And so it's possible that these rings that they collected along the way in Shechem or wherever they might have been back in Haran, that they were in some way a connection to the old world. There's another side of that that's kind of interesting. Uh, we find it in 1 Timothy. Let's see where I put my bookmark. Or 1 Timothy, I guess. And in 1 Peter, verse 3 and 4, I'll read a passage here. It says, verse 3 of chapter 3, 1 Peter, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, and putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. You know, sometimes there are things that you're going to leave behind in your life that aren't especially attached to a wicked lifestyle or that don't speak of something of a worldly nature, but it's maybe something that you're doing for the wrong reason. It says, don't let your, your adornment be merely outward. What really counts is what's going on inside your heart. But for some of us, we get a little bit addicted to fashion. That can be a God, okay? And uh, if it, it might have to do with these type of adornments 
that are really focused on self, glamorizing self, promoting self. And that's another aspect of it that, you know, you need to kind of let that old man die, bury him, don't drag him with you. Am I saying that ladies shouldn't wear earrings? No, I'm not saying that, okay? If you got that, you weren't really following with me. The idea is you have to do business with God. Jacob is doing business with God. God said to Jacob, okay? And you have to follow what Jacob said. And this is how Jacob commanded his family, we're going to just leave it all behind, lock, stock, and barrel. We're turning over a new leaf. We're going to make a fresh start. We're moving to Bethel. You know how far they had to move? 15 miles. In these 30 years of Jacob's wandering and pulling up short in Shechem, they were only 15 miles away from where they should have landed up in the first place. Can you imagine the grief they would have saved themselves had they just done that? We'll pick up here now at verse 5. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Remember, Jacob had said, you have made me obnoxious in the sight of all these people. They're going to destroy us because of what, what Levi and Simeon and the brothers had done in that city, and they were afraid of getting pummeled, and, and, and so they're leaving. But here, it's interesting, God overshadows them. He's, he is their... Um, their protector. The terror of God was on the cities that were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of God. Praise the Lord that God isn't fair, because if God was fair, He would have let those cities just beat up on them. That's what they had coming to them. But you know, God looks out for His children. God cares for us, and that's one of the beautiful things about dedicating our lives to God. We get that that, that benefit of God is on our side. You know, He's fighting our battles for us. And here we see that they get a, a, basically an escort. Just like in the chapters previous, there was that angels camped at Mahanamim. And it was this, this basically this whole regiment of, of angels to guard and protect them. And here God is protecting them. Okay, and they journeyed. Uh, and they, were, they got away free. Verse 6, so Jacob came to Luz that is Bethel. So it's just a name change of the two places here. They're both the same. Jacob's the one who named it Bethel. It was named by the inhabitants of the land, Luz, okay, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. So the whole family came, and it says, and he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, the last time he was there, he took up that stone that he had used as a pillow that night, set it on end, poured oil on it, consecrated it, and said, this is the house of God. Now that he's come back with all this family, it was just him and God back in the day, now he's got this family and his hired servants and his flocks, all of this, he comes to Bethel, they build an altar, and they name the place of the altar El Bethel, or God the house of God. And what's really cool here is now this is a family altar. This is a place where the whole family can come to worship and gather and honor Yahweh God. And so it's kind of, kind of cool like this. What's happened since he went out and now there's so many? It's kind of like our, our baptisms coming up. 
You know, it's just, it's a memorial. It's a testimony to what God is doing, right? We, we go out into the community and we, we go out and we publicly, publicly profess, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. Hell lost another one. I am free. Jesus saved another one. You know, I'm now part of the family of God. And we'll go down there in front of the world in the Snake River and we'll baptize folks and we will, as a way of making an altar, an act of worship to the Lord and bring the whole family. You all are welcome to come and celebrate this, this moment. It's going to be fun. Um, and so kind of a, a family affair now. Um, verse 8, now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under a terebinth tree, so the name of it was called Alan Bakuth. This is just, a, 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 just this random stray verse in here that gives us a little bit of detail. Uh, apparently, uh, Rebecca's nurse, probably somebody who came back with Rebecca when Abraham's servant went and got her, um, now these many years later, she died. It's kind of interesting in chapter 35, now that Jacob comes home, we're going to see three of the family members go home to be with the Lord, okay? And this is the first of them, like uh, you could say, beloved Aunt Debbie, okay? She's been part of the family forever, and now it's her time, and she goes home, and everybody gets to uh, enjoy that and, and be part of that. Verse 9, then God appeared to Jacob again. Now, at first, God appeared to Jacob in a dream, but now we've seen God in the physical form, the man that wrestled with him, and we've seen him in visions, and we've heard him speak, and here he appears to Jacob again when he came from Badanaram and blessed him, and God said to him, your name is Jacob, Jacob, heel catcher, and your name shall not be Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel or governed by God, ruled by God. Jacob was that guy who was always fighting with God, always trying to connive and wheel and deal and get the, the best angle on everything. And finally, God had to break him down, touch his hip, give him a limp for the rest of his life. But now instead of fighting with God, now Jacob is fighting with God on his team that they're together, united in this. And so he gets this new name, Israel, verse 11. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. And so we see this promise. It's the same promise that God gave Abraham in uh, chapter 26, that he gave Isaac in chapter 27, and that he gave Jacob back in chapter 28. And now he's repeating the promise again. It's not a new promise, but he repeats it. He reinforces it. And it's something that we enjoy every time we come together and celebrate Jesus. Every time we come to the table and celebrate communion. We don't change communion and say, oh, uh, let's see, this week let's have uh, bananas and root beer. This is not how you do it, okay? We don't change communion. We don't change the reason we do communion. It's always the same, perpetually, eternally. Jesus Christ died for us on the cross that we could be set free from the penalty of sin and death, that we could be indwelt with His Holy Spirit, that we could have membership in the family, that we could come to the table and be one with God and with Jesus. And that message never changes, but it sure doesn't hurt to repeat it. 
and repeat it and repeat it. And here God is repeating it to him. I am God Almighty. El Shaddai is the Hebrew for that word, the supplier of all your needs. Be faithful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And of course, this is one of the themes that runs through Genesis, that this establishment of God's plan for the redemption of mankind and His creation, right? From chapter 1 in creation, chapter 2, Adam and Eve, working on through to Noah and up the line, the fall of man, the Tower of Babel, and all these different things that are going on. God is working that, that plan of salvation through which He's going to bring Messiah, Jesus Christ, to the world, and it's going to come through this line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you, I give this land. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. That's interesting. That word went up is just he departed, but he didn't depart that way, and he didn't depart that way, and he didn't depart that way. He went up. And also, it's worth noting that this is a physical manifestation of God. It says he appeared to him, and then he went up. And so, again, this is what you would call a Christophany, a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ, okay? Just as around the world today, in many nations that are closed and shut down, Iran being classic, but China and Myanmar and, and so many places, they're having revival, and yet you can't teach the Bible, you can't preach the Bible, you can't even own the Bible without fear of the death penalty, and yet one of the biggest revivals, the fastest growing church on the planet today is in Iran. Okay, it's locked down, it's totally Muslim. Now, when I say fastest growing, the largest growing is China, and they're locked down as well. Because of their numbers, they are almost as many Chinese Christians in China as there are Americans, Christian or not, in all of America, okay? So there's revival going on. There are people getting saved. In Iran, you can't preach, but people are continually to report that they get visits from Jesus. They've been raised their whole life. They don't know the Bible. They've never read the Bible. They've never heard of Jesus. And they just get woke up out of their sleep. And they say, it was Jesus saying, standing there saying, I love you. I died for you. I gave myself for you. And they convert and they become Christians. And they've got a real problem in Iran because they just can't crush the church. Well, this is going on all around the world. And uh, God... He was in bodily form. Jesus visited him while well, he went up from him in the place that he talked with him. So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it. Okay, so same as the first time he took a stone, he took oil, and we know that oil is a, a representation, a picture of the Holy Spirit, how it just comforts and coats and soothes, and it's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of the anointing of the Holy Spirit coming upon somebody or something, and it's a way to consecrate something, to set it apart, to make it as holy unto the Lord. And so he did that, but we also see he pours a drink offering. This is the first mention in the Bible of a drink offering. You'll see a lot of them as you go through the Scriptures. But um, one of them is kind of fun. In Philippians, in chapter uh, 2, at verse 17, Paul writing, he says, Yes, 
And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And the idea of a drink offering, that's usually wine, okay, because they would carry wine with them. And that would be, and wine throughout the scriptures is typically a picture of joy and celebration. And there Paul in Philippians says, I am being poured out. My life is being offered as a sacrifice in your service, but it's being done so cheerfully with joy. I'm overwhelmed that God has allowed me to just pour out unto you. And here, Jacob, as he returns home, he anoints it, he consecrates it, he makes it holy, and he just pours a drink offering because this is a time of just pure joy. I'm home. Hallelujah. So, I love it. In uh, Psalm 23, David writes, uh, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Bethel, the house of the Lord. Have we come home, church? I just love Sunday morning. I just love being with you all and sharing these things. Verse 16, then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. Now it came to pass when she was in hard labor that the midwife said to her, do not fear, you will have this son also. If you remember back when there was the baby wars going on and it was Leah, the other wife that was having all the children, at one point, uh, Rachel says, give me children or I will die, right? And, this, and Jacob's like, who am I standing in the place of God? What do you expect me to do? right? And, and, and here we have, sadly, this coming to pass. She's in labor. She's not going to survive labor. But when she did have finally a child, she named that child's name Joseph, and she said, and he will add, which is to say there's more coming after this. And in fact, that came to pass as well right here. She's having a child. The midwife says, don't fear, you'll have this son also. Verse 18, and so it was, as her soul was departing, or she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Now, Benoni means the son of my sorrow. You can imagine, as, as she's giving birth, she's in travail, and the baby's coming, and she's like, I don't think I'm going to make it. And uh, this, this sorrow, this travail, she says, you're the son of my sorrow. How sad, right? What, what, a, what a sad way to... Um, commemorate this moment, okay? But his father called him Benjamin. No, no, that's not going to work. We're not going to look at you for the rest of our life and remember that we lost your mom in childbirth. You're going to get a different name. You'll be Ben. Now, Ben is the Hebrew word for son. So, Ben Onai, Ben, son of my sorrow. Ben Jamin, Jamin is right righteousness or right hand. And so, Benjamin means son of my right hand, okay? You're my right-hand man, okay? You're really close to me. And so, this, this son comes along, Benjamin. So, Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. So, you're very familiar with this. This is the place Bethlehem, okay? 
It's fun. In the book of Ruth, we read about this. In Ruth chapter 4 at verse 11, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah. This is speaking to Ruth when they, she got married to Boaz and like, man, I hope God makes you like Rachel and Leah. And you wonder, is that a blessing or is that a curse? Okay. Um, but the, the idea being that you would have lots of children, that you would be prosperous, uh, that you'd be like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. And they were famous in Bethlehem. Ruth's name is now included in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and, and it was a wonderful thing. We also find this come up again in the Gospels. It was the shepherds in Luke chapter 2 who were watching the flocks by night. They were, I guess I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but they were watching at the, at the uh, Migdal Eder, the watchtower where you would watch the flocks of Bethlehem. And then we also see later after Jesus' birth, when the wise men come to visit, Herod gets word of it. He gets jealous. He finds out where this child was to be born and in Bethlehem. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry, and he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. This is quoting out of Jeremiah 31, 15. A voice was heard in Ramah. This is Bethlehem. This is Ephrathah. A voice was heard, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And if you were to go to Jeremiah 35, verse 16, the next verse that we quoted out of Matthew at the massacre of the innocents by wicked King Herod. Uh, it goes on to say in, in um, Jeremiah, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. And so this is a, 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 a remarkable thing that Rachel... Jacob's wife, the wife he loved, now has a second son. He calls him the son of my right hand, but he loses the wife that he would love there at Bethlehem. And it's even noted then by Matthew when Herod tries to kill all the babies to, to get Jesus. Of course, they snuck away to Egypt and, and Jesus was spared all of that because the angel had warned them. But as all this goes on through, rather interesting to see how all of this plays out in the scriptures. You know, last Sunday we were talking out of chapter 34 and all the problems that we have in this world today because of sexual immorality and um, rape and incest and, and all of these kinds of things. And I know a number of people came to me afterwards and said, man, that was kind of a, a touching topic. You know, a, a lot of people were touched, and I, I, I was told several people, you know, were brought to tears by it. And, and I, I understand that it can be tough talking about these issues, issues of rape, issues of incest, issues of abortion, issues of these kinds of things. But know that God loves you, 
And God has a plan for you. And even here, with the death of Rachel and her son Benjamin, the son of my right hand, and in the death of all those innocent children in Jerusalem trying to get after Jesus, you know the Bible teaches that children go into the presence of the Lord. Innocent children are going to be in heaven. And so, if that's something that's in your heart, in this debate that's going on across our nation right now, it's really the, the people that are involved, the parents that are involved in these choices, they're the ones that really, really, really suffer. And I'm not trying to in any way make any excuse whatsoever for abortion. I'm not going there. But God knows, and God can cover, and God has hope. Here in Jeremiah, he says those children are coming back. What he was saying to Jeremiah is the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, don't worry, I'm not done with them. I've got a plan to redeem them to myself too. And it's the same for you and I. We, just, we need to trust the Lord. We need to give things into God's heart, know that He's got a plan, know that He can forgive anybody who wants to be forgiven and, uh, and, and walk on with our life. So he set up a pillar on her grave, which pillar which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Um, one other s- side note here, this is Benjamin, and in Bethlehem, when Joshua came into the promised land and they conquered it, and they started allotting different parts of the territory of the promised land to the 12 tribes of Israel, it was Benjamin who got the portion that included Bethlehem and his mother's grave, and and all of that. It came to Benjamin. And then you're going to see through the Scriptures, there was a very famous Benjamite in the Scripture by the name of Saul. He was King Saul, okay? And he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and he was quite the warrior. The tribe of Benjamin has always been known as a warrior tribe amongst the Israelites, and this all comes out of that particular... It kind of has its genesis, no, no pun intended, right here in these verses. Um, Verse 21, Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar, or Migdal Adar. That's the tower, and really it's called the tower of the flock. That's where they would watch over the the flocks. Verse 22, And it happened when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. (sighs) Just when you think we got it, Okay, right? Um, just, just wickedness, more wickedness, and um, I don't know. What more do you need to say about that? I'll just, I'll, I'll read briefly what Jacob said about it when at the end of Genesis chapter 49, he gathered all the boys around him and he gave them each their blessing. And this is what he said to Reuben. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity, and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. You're out of the, you're out of the will. <laughs> you're disinherited. You're not going to get anything, okay, from me in that regard. No blessing comes to Reuben. And sadly, so we've got Levi and Simeon who did that wicked deed. They were the leaders anyways of the wicked deed in uh, Shechem. Now we've got Reuben. That's the three oldest sons. Now it's up to Judah. 
um, to carry on. Don't hold your breath, but you probably know that Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. But there's a couple bumps in the road before we get there. Verse 22, and actually it's the end of uh, 22, if you notice in your Bible. Now the sons of Jacob were 12, okay? Summary statement. We've got all, everybody's here, all 12. We got them all now, okay? And their name, the sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. So you get the same birth order, or the same, I guess, name order. This uh, in uh, the book of First Chronicles, when you go through all the genealogies in chapter two. But what is interesting is we're going to go not too much further in the book of Genesis, and you're going to see that Joseph is going to then give a double blessing to his two sons. Were who were born to him in Egypt, Ephraim and Manasseh. And what you end up with is 13 tribes of Israel, okay? And we always talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's rather interesting, as you go through the Scriptures, every time it mentions those 12 tribes, it only mentions 12, and then it's always interesting to see who got left out, okay? And possibly what that might mean to the story. Dan is the one that gets left out the most often, but don't worry, he comes back in Revelation, okay? So, God has a plan for all these people, even if they have to have a time out, okay? Verse 27, Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or at Kirjath Arba, that is Hebron, three different places as they were known for the same place. This is where Abraham dwelt in tents, dug his wells, and uh, built his altars in Hebron where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Verse 28, Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So here we have this family reunion. Sort of sad. Isaac hasn't seen Jacob for 30 years, okay? Um, last time he had saw him, he had tricked him. Now they come back. And we even see a reunion with Esau and Jacob. Remember, they departed and... Jacob snuck out and went the other way when he was supposed to be following Esau down into Seir. Um, but they do come together, and they come together in peace, and they bury their father, Isaac. And so this is the end of that toledot, okay? If you remember, that's the Hebrew word for genealogies or descendants or history of. And as you remember, the book of Genesis is structured around these stories, these books, if you will. Each one is what you would cluster as a toledot, a story of this family. That was the genealogy of Isaac. It ends right there at verse 29. As, as a note, Isaac was the longest lived of the patriarchs. He lived 180 years. In comparison, Abraham lived 175, Jacob 147, and Joseph will live 110 years. And so this is the end of this Toledot. Now, I'm going to go through chapter 36, and I'm going to do it in a way not like I normally do. For starters, I'm not going to read most of it. Please don't throw rotten tomatoes at me. You can read it on your own. It is full of names. These are two more 
toledotes. They're each one very small, chapter 36, 1 through 8, and then chapter 36, 9 through 43, that, and, and actually through 37, 1. These are two stories. They're the story of Esau. So what you can imagine is that as the book of Genesis was being written out by Moses, he was the uh, editor, if you will. He collected all these stories. He collected the story of creation. He collected the Toledot of Adam and Eve. He collected the Toledot or the genealogies of Noah. And, each, and he had all of these different bits and pieces, and then he put them all together into what we call the book of Genesis. And here, at the end of Isaac's genealogy or history, his story, then we get appended in here these two bits that tell of Esau. Whatever happened to Esau? Because after this, we're going to go on with Joseph, Jacob's son. So, it starts out in verse 36, 1. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Remember, Esau, his name meant Harry. Edom was red, and that was the same as that bowl of beans or lentils, red chili that he traded his birthright for. But the land across the Jordan River from Israel to the east, that is what was Eden. Today it's modern-day Jordan, okay? But it's those hills on the other side of the Jordan River going on out into the desert. That's where Esau ended up in the land of Eden. Now, verse 36, 1 through 8, tells of Esau's wives and children, okay? So this is who he married, and these are the kids that he had. And that's, that's basically fundamentally it. In verse 8, it says, so Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom, okay? Interchangeable. And you'll see that in the Bible as you go through, referencing either the country of Eden or the person who founded the country, Esau. Um, one small note, Mount Seir uh, in the Jordan area is where the city of Petra is. If you've seen the movie Indiana Jones, where they come through this deep cleft, and you walk out and you see these um, buildings that are carved into the stone itself. That's the lost city, or not the lost city, the city of Petra. It was said that even 12 men could defend it from a whole army because you had to come through this very small gap to get into, but it's a quite a large city, and this is where that, that is in, in Edom. Uh, to the east of Israel. Verse 9, and this is the genealogy, so that's Toledoth number 10, if you're keeping track, okay? We just finished Toledoth number 8 of Isaac. Now we have Toledoth, or the genealogy of Esau number 9, and we get a second one on Esau. So apparently, these two histories were circulating around. They came into Moses' possession, and he plugged them into the narrative here, so that if you're ever wondering whatever became of Esau, you can, you can kind of do your family search here. This is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. Uh, a couple things I'll point out, and we're going to be jumping out of this in a very quick time. Verse 11, it says, okay, Esau had a son named Eliphaz. In verse 11, the sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kines. Kind of funny. Now, Timah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. I bring that out because you're going to find out that Amalek founded a 
tribe of his own known as the Amalekites, okay? And you're going to follow through the Amalekites over time, and they were, they were very, very bad. Um, in uh, Exodus chapter 17, as the nation of Israel was fleeing Pharaoh and coming through the wilderness, the Amalekites were chasing the nation of Israel and picking off all the stranglers, all the sick, all the weak and lame, all the kids. They were just back there picking them off and constantly having fights with the nation of Israel. There was that scene in uh, Genesis, or Exodus chapter 17 where Moses goes up on the hill, sends Joshua down in the valley to lead the battle against the Amalekites, and that every time Moses would lift his staff and keep his hands in the air, that the Israelites would prevail over the Amalekites. But you can only hold your hands up so long, Moses' hands would get tired and he would set them down. All of a sudden, the Amalekites started whooping up on the Israelites. And so Aaron and Hur came along and held his hands up until after sunset so they could finish the job, and they chased off the Amalekites. Throughout the Scriptures, you're going to see Amalekites referred to, and they are a picture for us, a type of the flesh, that which is fleshly, that is always doing battle with you. It's always dogging you. It's always right there on your heels, nipping at you and causing you trouble. And the ultimate thing is you just have to take care of the Amalekites. You need to blot them out. You need to cut it off. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, 17, God tells the nation, when you go into the promised land with those uh, Canaanites, when you see the Amalekites, wipe them all out. Don't have mercy on them, just wipe them out. And for us, it's a picture of the type of the flesh. Just like we opened up to this, uh, this morning, you know, you have to put off the old man, you have to put off the filthy garments, you got to put away that old stuff, you got to cut it off, wipe it out, blot it out. That's the Amalekites. And interesting, I mentioned uh, son of Benjamin, uh, King Saul, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul comes back from a battle. They have beat up on the Amalekites, but they bring back all their herds and they bring back the king of the Amalekites, King Agag. And Samuel is walking along and he's hearing all the bleating of sheep. And God had said, wipe them all out. Don't leave a survivor. Don't leave their flocks. Don't take anything from them. Just wipe them out and walk away. And Samuel says to King Saul, what is that I hear? The bleeding of sheep. And Samuel starts making uh, excuses. Oh, 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 oh. Well, I meant to keep those so we could, uh, we could use them for having sacrifices. And then there's King Agag. And what about him? The king of the Amalekites. You were supposed to wipe him out. And it says it was at that point that the anointing departed from King Saul. And he was no longer ever able to rule again because when he should have cut them out, he didn't, and it becomes a problem. Um, so you go on through. Those are the Amalekites, okay? And we go on down through all of these sons of Edom. Uh, interesting passage here in verse 24. Uh, this was the, uh, these were the sons of Zibion, both, Aj I don't know if it's Aja and Ana. This was the Ana who found the water, literally hot springs, in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father, Zibion. Just a, a throwaway comment in there, but it's kind of interesting. It's these kinds of things that help us to see that the Bible is a historical document. It's a factual document. It's peppered with all kinds of intricacies and details 
that really don't move the message along. They don't really relate in any way to what's at hand, what's being discussed, but it's, it's the reality of what was there, what was happening. So, if you're ever wandering around in Edom, you might come on these hot springs and then you can, you can join up with Anna there. Um, and one final thing down in verse 33, talking about sons of, of Bela, uh, or sons of Esau, this one Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. You might remember Basra during the um, Gulf Wars. This is one of the areas that was uh, heavily involved in warfare was Basra. Um, and people speculate this Jobab maybe is Job of the book of Job. Now, part of this, you get back in chapter uh, verse 11, Eliphaz of Teman, and we read in the book of Job that one of his friends was Eliphaz the Temanite. And so could this Jobab be Job of the Bible? That is pure speculation, maybe, maybe not. But there is no corroborating, corroborating evidence anywhere in the Bible or outside of the Bible in archaeology to put those two pieces together. I bring it up to you because you might be in a Bible someday, study someday, and somebody say, hey, what about this? Say, so, yep, we noticed it, but you can't do too much with that one. Um, so we've got Esau and the Edomites, okay? Uh, now, they're mentioned 130 times in the Bible. They're, they are important, um, and important especially as neighbors to Israel. When the Israelites came through the wilderness to the promised land in the time of Moses, the Edomites refused them passage through their land. We read in Numbers chapter 20, this was a source of great discouragement for the nation of Israel. We read in Numbers 21, but even so, God commanded special regard for the Edomites among Israel, saying in Deuteronomy 23, you shall not abhor an Edomite for he is your brother, because they are Jacob and Esau. Now, in the days of Saul, Edom was made subject to Israel. That's when Saul conquered Agag, but didn't wipe him out. And David established garrisons there. So they had outposts on the other side of the Jordan River in the Edom area. We read in 2 Samuel 8. But in the latter days, the days of Jorab, the son of Ahab, okay, not a good king, the Edomites became independent of Israel. They got, they got loose. They got free again. Now, as time went on, several prophets in the Bible speak out against Edom, prophecies or woes to Edom. Jeremiah does and Ezekiel do, woe unto Edom. And we know that Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus, we read about the slaughter of the innocents, he was actually an Edomite. From the time Islam conquered the Middle East, to this day, it's been virtually unoccupied, except for a few Bedouins and a military outpost here and there, and it has become nothing. It's been brought to just desolation. As Obadiah, the book of Obadiah prophesied, the entire book of Obadiah is an um, extended prophecy against Edom. It's all about Edom, and you're going you're gonna to amount to nothing. Worship team, come on up. As we talk about that, um, we have here Jacob, who walked and eventually limped 
with the Lord. He fought against the Lord, and he finally began to fight on God's side. And then we have Esau, and Esau never really got in line with God. As we see in chapter 36 here, lots of chiefs, they call them, kings, princes, rulers, lots of stuff, lots of material possessions. Um, You remember when Esau went into his father and said, do you have a blessing for me, just one for me? And so Isaac did bless him, but all he got was material possessions. And Esau did quite well materially, but spiritually he was bankrupt. In fact, we read in Malachi chapter 1 at verse 2, God says, Jacob, I have loved. Esau, I have hated. And that's one that makes people like, what? Can God hate somebody? Well, yeah, it's straight up. Um, and, and, and there's a reason for that. It's, it's kind of finely hidden in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 12 through 17, and we're going to wrap up on this. Chapter 12, verse 12 through 17. And it kind of speaks of Jacob, the the heel catcher who had his hip touched, and he limped, and he was broken. And Esau, who was proud and prosperous, but godless, says verse 12, Therefore strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather healed. Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who was for one morsel of food, sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears." He sought it diligently with tears and found no place for repentance. Is there a time, is there a place where you can go so far that God will not forgive you? It's a tough question to ask. It's a a hard thing to answer. We see it in Esau's life here. We see it in the life of Pharaoh God sent plague after plague after plague. And it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God, hardened his heart against God, hardened his heart. Every time he got harder and harder to God, finally you get to the last plague and it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. We see Judas, who Jesus sat at the table, place of honor, dipped bread together in the bowl, washed his feet betrayed Jesus with a kiss. In the book 1 Timothy, speaking of the last days, the days that we are actually living in, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies in hypocrisy, 
having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. If you give yourself over to the world, to wickedness, to wantonness, to waste, and you allow it and you entertain it, you could become one of those people whose conscience is seared with a hot iron. That's like cauterized. And you no longer feel. You no longer have sense. There's no pain. You, you can't, there's no guilt. There's no shame. You don't care. You don't care about the things of God. Today, if you can hear me, there's time. There's a place where God's grace is sufficient for you. But you must repent. You must turn from the old man, put off those old things, and walk to Christ. And he will welcome you like the prodigal father with open arms, wrap you in his arms, wrap you in his robe, put his ring on your finger, throw a party and celebrate. But church, we have a mission because we're living in these latter days. And there are many that we need to go seek. We need to save the lost. I mentioned to you the conference that I went to a couple weeks ago. And the passage, it's out of the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 where Jesus is speaking to the disciples about this end days and what will be the signs of those days and wars and rumors of wars and persecution. They'll deliver you up to your neighbors. They'll kill you and all these kinds of things. But he finally says, and in these last days, the love of many will grow cold. And it, it just pierced me. After, I've been reading the Bible for 30 years, teaching it, I don't know how many times, I don't know how many times I've taught the Olivet Discourse, but I never really pondered this one and put it together. But that love of many that grows cold is not, there's many words for love in the Bible. There's eros, erotic love, and that's not growing cold in the world. There's phileo, brotherly love, bro, how you doing? That's all good. Everything's going on in the world that way. And storge, family love and all that. But the love of many that grows cold in these latter days is agape. That's us. And there's a lost and dying world. And there's a day, there's a line in the sand. There's your conscience is going to be seared if you don't turn and come to Jesus Christ. I know I'm preaching to the choir, but y'all, we're, we're the army. <laughs> we're, we're the people that go out into the world. We're the salt and the light. We need to get the salt out of the shakers. We need to get the light out from under the bushel. We need to go out and share the good news with, with, with people that we love. Tuesday, we vote. Vote the Bible. Vote Jesus. Get involved with the world. Talk to your neighbors. The time is short. And God, grace is infinite. If there's anybody here that has not made peace with God, I'd like you to do that right now. This is your moment. Bow your heart with me and pray. Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I need to be forgiven. 
And the things that I've done, I know are wrong. But I know your son, Jesus Christ, died for me. I believe and receive your gift of forgiveness. And I ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will help me walk worthy of you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer, now go get somebody else to pray it with you. Amen? Let's pray for the agape feast, and uh, we'll close on up with some worship. Bow your hearts, please, again. Father God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, for those serving in Sunday school and all those kiddies coming to faith down there. We thank you for those who have brought food to share this morning. And we thank you, Lord, even for the visitor that's in this room today, that they would feel welcome, that we could go together, break bread, and, and as one, join our hearts in this mission that you've given us to seek and save that which is lost, to go into the world and declare your great victory in your great name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hayburn, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.